Welcome to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. All that remains in the Derek Chauvin trial are closing statements, as the jury is expected to get the case on Monday. We'll have some legal analysis coming up. Plus, perpetual war, no more. After 20 years of conflict, President Biden orders the withdrawal of all U.S. troops from Afghanistan. But first, a congressional white caucus? Well, we haven't seen this before. It looks like a number of people in the Republican Party are working to form an Anglo-Saxon caucus. Translation, a caucus based on white people. Joining me now is Politico's Nicholas Wu, who's been covering Congress. And uh, first off, this has to do with Marjorie Taylor Greene, doesn't it? Her and a few other uh, hard right members of the Republican Party. So what exactly are they trying to do here? What's the goal? Well, there's this draft document floating around uh, for what they're calling this America First Caucus. So you, know, you, you have these sorts of uh, formal and informal groups in Congress of members with sort of uh, like-minded ideas and uh, um, concerns. And, and, you know, they range from everything from you know, the Congressional Black Caucus to the Congressional Beer Caucus. And uh, this appears to be something a little bit different. This has already started to generate some controversy, obviously, from the left. Democrats are criticizing it. But uh, House Leader, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy said this has no place really in politics. Yes, uh, both he and then also their conference chair, uh, Congresswoman Liz Cheney, uh, have, um, have basically criticized the, the content of this uh, draft document for the caucus. Uh, but as it turns out, you know, Congresswoman uh, Green actually just put out a statement, not defending really anything in there, but um, saying that she had not actually seen this document and that it had been a uh, staff-level draft proposal. So she's like obliquely um, disavowing this whole thing. So what did that document say? What was so controversial about it other than having this caucus based on white people values? <laughs> well, that's... Um, uh, you know, uh, kind of an inflammatory thing to begin with, but it was this. You know, there, there were several planks to this whole group that said that they wanted something based on Anglo-Saxon traditions. To even uh, there was this sort of um, interesting worded aside on you know what the group said they believed on infrastructure, which was that you know the Romans built aqueducts and bridges well, and that Americans should try to emulate that. It was this very um, bizarre. And so Marjorie Taylor Greene has has tried to distance herself from this, but, you know, if you were to pick any member of Congress where you would think, yeah, that sounds about right, Marjorie Taylor Greene has been no stranger to controversy, no stranger to controversy involving race. So this kind of fits the mold, doesn't it? She's been kind of a lightning rod for this sort of controversy in her time in Congress. And, you know, it's, it's not just her who's part of this, too. There's several other House Republicans, including um, you know, Congressman Matt Gates of Florida, who himself is facing his fair share of controversy right now over uh, sex trafficking allegations, um, who, who tweeted you know, quite enthusiastically that he was all for this kind of group. So is this group going to actually move forward? Is it, it going to form? Are we going to see this Anglo-Saxon caucus in Congress? I, it, you know, My understanding is that it, there's not that much that can prevent a group like this from forming. And to be fair, there's not a whole lot that Republican leadership can do about Marjorie Taylor Greene right now either. I mean, they, she has already been removed from her committees, which is you know one of the main ways that uh, leadership can sanction members, as happened with uh, Congressman Steve King, who made similarly inflammatory comments about race a few years ago. And so uh, you know, this is 
something that will continue to be the sort of headache House Republican leadership, which you know it would would very like to t- very much like to talk about things other than the antics of Marjorie Taylor Greene and other very conservative members of their caucus. All right, Nicholas Wu, reporter for Politico, thank you so much for your time and insight. And thank you for having me. Meanwhile, President Biden announced that he will be withdrawing troops from Afghanistan by September 11th of this year, the 20th anniversary of those tragic attacks in New York and elsewhere. Joining me now is ABC's Andy Field, and this has been one of the longest, if not the longest, ongoing military conflict the United States has ever seen, and now it looks like it's coming to an end. Well, we've heard the, that story before. We heard it under President Obama. We even heard it under President George W. Bush, who said the troops in there after 9-11. Uh, it's very difficult to get troops out of there once you've got gone into a place. Look, we are still in Japan more than a half century after World War II. We're still in Germany. So it's not a thing that the United States typically does. It's once we go in, we don't tend to leave. But in this case, the conflict really hasn't ended. The Taliban keeps saying they want to make peace, but there are always these skirmishes and attacks. And at some point, the president said, we don't want to do this anymore. There, there doesn't seem to be an upside for the United States. It's certainly not stopping terrorists here in the United States anymore. And that was the original goal. He said, we accomplished that goal. We cleaned out those pockets of terror that were importing uh, terrorists to our, our country. And one of the main goals was to find, capture, or kill Osama bin Laden. And that was mission accomplished under President Obama. So he said, there's no reason to do this anymore. And even if the Taliban terror threats flare up again. He goes, the UN is there. Our other allies are there. And if U.S. interests are attacked again, he said, we will respond. So how much of this was political pressure from the left? Because this has been something a lot of people have been wanting since American troops were first deployed 20 years ago. I don't know that this was pressure put on him by anyone. This is something he has publicly stated he's wanted for quite some time. He was there uh, many times as vice president. He saw firsthand that no matter what the United States was doing, it wasn't changing any hearts and minds, and that there didn't seem to be any reason to continue to risk American lives when The people there didn't seem to want to have anything made better. And so he is pretty adamant about the fact that we got to get out of there. Of course, he's got opposition, mostly in the form of Lindsey Graham, the Republican senator, who is basically saying, I don't trust the Taliban to look out for American interests, and we're going to find ourselves in a very tough position. He also says, if we pull out, we'll lose our listening post in the backyard of some of the most radical movements in the world. He goes, we will lose that insurance policy against 9-11. That is something that President Biden, his secretary of state, and even the U.S. intelligence agencies disagree with, saying, no, that's not the case. We still have intelligence assets there, and we have our early warning systems in place, and we don't need to have thousands of American troops just patrolling there and basically be sitting ducks for another terror attack inside that country. Well, that kind of brings me to my next question. Uh, What's been the reaction from the military and and military leaders? Are they supportive of this? Well, they seem to be, certainly the, the leaders that he's put in place here. But, you know, there are military leaders, including some in the past, that are saying, what is the end game here? And there never seemed to be an end game. And so if there's no end game, you've got to 
end it yourself or find some reason to do it. And that's what President Biden's doing. He goes, we have accomplished our goals. It's time to bring the American troops home. That's ABC's Andy Field. And for more of a military perspective on the withdrawal from Afghanistan, Kamos Elisa Jaffe spoke with retired General Barry McCaffrey. This formal announcement, ABC has learned, is expected Wednesday, sir, to have a full military exit by the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks. What will this mean? Yeah, it'll be a sad day in in Afghanistan for their future. I think it will uh, implode almost without question, probably rapidly, certainly under a year. And the actual withdrawal of U.S. forces, once we've announced we're out on a specified day in uh, September, uh, puts the remaining troops there, I think, at significant risk both from the Taliban and also from the friendlies who will say, you people are leaving us to our fate. Uh, and they'll be uh, less than, uh, than happy about U- U.S. performance. So I don't know what President Biden's options realistically were. But this is the beginning of a very sad end, in my view. Well, this war has cost more than 2,000 U.S. service members their lives. Our nation's longest war, by not having the U.S. forces there, is the U.S. safe from the Taliban? You're saying the U.S. service members there aren't safe. Are we safe in this country? Well, of course, that's the initial justification for going into Afghanistan. It was not just a punitive response to al-Qaeda and uh, trying to eliminate the terrorist threat to to America, to our allies, uh, but also to stabilize the country and make sure in coming years it wouldn't be a source of uh, continuing international uh, danger. Uh, I think it's less likely that we significantly increase the danger to the United States not not significant in my view, than the almost immediate collapse of Afghanistan with millions of refugees fleeing into the Central Asian republics, Iran, Pakistan. It's likely to be a nightmare for women's rights, for institutions of, of uh, government. Uh, again, I think you got to underscore, I don't think President Biden had any good political options. But kicking the can to a symbolic date of September 11th uh, certainly isn't much of a help. But the Trump administration had already negotiated last year what a phased out total withdrawal between now and September, hadn't they? I think Trump absolutely put Biden in the worst possible situation. He had appealed to the populist and understandable antipathy toward this continued long war among American people, put down a one May withdrawal date, essentially told the Taliban, if you stop shooting at us, we'll get out of here and uh, you can sort it out with the, uh, the remaining government. So I think Trump just put President Biden in an impossible situation. Again, there's no good political solution. The only good, probably long-term solution would have been if NATO said, we're staying for 50 years if that's required with an advisory and supportive element, and then the U.S. joined that continuing effort. But politically, very unappealing. Biden can't go that route, even though some of the Democrats now 
are denouncing this move, like uh, Senator Shaheen from uh, New Hampshire, because again, it's just likely to be a painful end to this story. Retired four-star General Barry McCaffrey, appreciate your insight, sir. Thank you. Good to be with you. Turning now to the trial of Derek Chauvin. Joining me now is ABC News legal analyst Royal Oaks. And uh, I guess the first question is, now that uh, all of this is uh, pretty much over, we just have the closing statements remaining, how's the trial going so far? Is it uh, tipping in one direction, do you think? It's tempting to say the prosecution has the edge because they put on a lot of very solid-sounding testimony concerning two themes. One, uh, it was a knee on the neck that killed uh, Floyd. And secondly, this was a violation of police policy. And yet, there is something that that maybe would give the defense a, a little hope, and that is we did not see Officer Derek Chauvin on the stand. And if the defense's attitude was that it's pretty much a done deal or going to lose, they probably would have rolled the dice and let him testify to perhaps tearfully express remorse uh, to the jury, humanize himself. We didn't see that. That suggests the defense, at least, thinks that they still have a shot, if not at winning, at least having a hung jury in this case. Now, when the jury gets the case on Monday, this is going to be a big hurdle for them. I mean, there was a lot of evidence, as you mentioned. You've got the video. uh, You've got the testimony, the expert witnesses. How are they going to be able to put all that together and come to a verdict? It is very difficult to not only process all of the information. You've got some 11 days and 38 witnesses for the prosecution, two days and seven witnesses for the defense. But also there's the distraction factor. They know the whole whole world is watching. They know that uh, Minneapolis perhaps will uh, see some violence if they come back with a decision that some people don't like. So that's got to weigh heavily on everybody's mind. So it's never easy, you're right, to, to be a juror in any case, much less a complex one where you're under a microscope. But this case has a lot of distractions. So how do the attorneys for both sides deal with that with the jury instructions? The jury instructions, of course, are the sort of the technical uh, statements that the two sides are asking the judge to read to the jury to define the various elements of the crimes uh, of, of the murder in the second degree and so on. Probably even more important, though, is the contents of the final arguments, because that's the opportunity for the lawyers to look the jurors in the eye and say, all right, you've paid careful attention to weeks of testimony. Here's how it should be boiled down. And the prosecution is going to be saying it's very simple. Look at that video. Your the testimony you heard confirmed what must have been your instinct upon seeing that horrific video that this was a criminal act. The defense, on the other hand, will say it's not that simple. The fact is he was on drugs, meth and fentanyl. He had a heart condition. Expert physicians have testified they don't think it was the knee on the neck who did it. That translates to reasonable doubt. For the layperson out there, and and the jurors are laypeople for the most part, how does it not begin and end with that video? It's very tempting to uh, to watch the video and just say that's it. Studies say 70% of the time jurors make up their mind during the opening statement of a case and they never change their mind. Well, in a case where you have a dramatic emotional video, I would think there'd be an even greater danger that people would not have an open mind throughout the extent of the trial. But I think we just have to trust the jurors take their civic responsibility seriously. They know that if they say guilty, this guy could go to prison for up to 40 years and therefore they should do their best to take an honest, objective, unbiased view of the evidence. 
Do you think we get a verdict from the jury next week? I wouldn't be surprised if we do, uh, because they're probably going to have uh, at least four solid days, maybe four and a half of deliberations. Uh, and if it drags on for three or four or five days, then, of course, that's a sign that they're having trouble reaching that required unanimous verdict. In a criminal case, it has to be unanimous either way, whether it's guilty or not guilty. If they send questions out of the jury room to the judge indicating they're having trouble, the judge will probably give them a pep talk, maybe tell them to role play, look at the evidence again, uh, whatever it takes to make sure that this was not a wasted exercise. At the end of the day, though, if they just can't decide, the judge will have no choice but declare a hung jury, and then presumably there'd be a second Derek Chauvin trial. All right, CBC News legal analyst Roy Lokes, thank you so much. You bet. Thank you. And that will do it for this episode of the Como Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other programs, such as Como News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and our hourly news updates. All are available at comonews.com slash podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogela. Thank you for listening, and have a good week.